Hello and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast for the first week of September 2020. Hope everybody's doing well. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode. Wanted to talk a little bit about the start of September, some of the stuff I've been up to. It's cool. I just finished a roll of film here pretty recently. Uh, like I think during this last week when I was uh, out traveling around. and I haven't finished a roll of film in a while. I've been uh, shooting mostly on uh, the digital camera that I've got, I, I kind of moved over to Canon equipment back in 2018, and I've been shooting with that for, I guess now, almost two years is what it's coming up to. Um, and so during that time, I had uh, picked up a, a, a Canon film camera body, and I've been using like the Canon lenses that I have for my digital camera on the EOS system over on an older Canon film camera from I think the late 90s is what I was able to pick up. So I went over onto like keh.com. I think this was uh, this is probably like nine months ago or so at the beginning of the year, and I had picked up um, a real inexpensive uh, Canon camera body. It was like thirty five dollars something like that to to pick up this camera. Mostly plastic in the body, but it has a bunch of the manual controls. Uh, that you would expect from sort of a mid-range SLR, sort of like the 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 5D Mark or you know the 5D Mark, the 5D line, you know of whatever one you want to pick. But it's not the full professional build model, but it's definitely not the the lower end one. So yeah, it has a, like kind of the same layout of buttons and stuff on it as you, as you can get with the the more modern layout of uh, Canon buttons and stuff. So most of it's really the same as it, it kind of translates back from one to the other. Uh, but it's cool, pretty simple camera. It's got, I think, like three focus points, three autofocus points on the on the inside, and uh, that works fine for the the kind of simple stuff that I was trying to do. But it's cool. I was um, I was a car going by. I'm out here at a wildlife refuge spot, and uh, I was checking out sort of how it's changed now that it's September first. They've um, they've cut all the grass that they grow in these fields out here. That's all been uh, cut, baled, driven off, and then now. It's like been tilled up and there's like dirt and rocks and like all of these big multi-acre fields that kind of stretch on out here. So I've been working with this Canon film camera. This uh, I can't remember what the name of it is, but it's got uh, like pretty simple controls. It's been easy to use. It takes a weird battery. Maybe I talked about that before. That's kind of the tricky thing about some of these late 90s SLR cameras is that they take these sort of uh, not proprietary, but these almost proprietary disposable batteries i think uh, this one is it's something sort of like two sort of fat double a's that are bonded together and then kind of wrapped in this you know this little casing unit and that's supposed to like fit in your camera and then power power the camera for i don't know a couple rolls or something like that it works fine but uh, i always kind of prefer the double a or you know something that's a little bit more standard i understand that like they needed uh certain batteries to deliver more power for certain mechanisms. But I think now they've got that pretty well figured out with different series or different sets of series of double uh, A and triple A batteries that they can use. Um, but like the, like the lithium ion double A batteries seem to work fine. And a lot of the stuff that I'd used before, even just, you know, the basic, basic Duracell stuff has always worked fine. These are, these are weird batteries though. They're, you know, like real thick kind of, like if you took a double A battery and if it was made of Play-Doh, you took a double A, just kind of squished it a centimeter smaller than it was and kind of got it fatter on the sides. That's sort of what it looks like. And like I was saying, yeah, bound together 
as a set of two and then put into the camera and i haven't had to replace it in the year but really i've only shot through one roll so i think uh like when i was shooting with the the nikon f4 uh i think that takes a proprietary battery but if for you have the the double a battery pack system that attaches to it and that's what i had so so that one took like i don't know it took like six double a batteries that went into the base and into the handle of the camera and you could get about 10 rolls of film shot with just that one set of batteries and for me that would last a really long time but if you would imagine uh you know 10 rolls of film is you know what a max 36 frames so if you multiply that out it's you know it's it's not more than a day's worth of shooting if you're if you're kind of shooting a, an event or like a wedding or a sporting event or something like that where you're, you're going to be expected to come back with a lot of frames that you uh that you you know develop and produce and then pick from but uh, uh for most of this kind of like uh landscape work that i'm up to uh or you know like the, the this sort of stuff it's a lot slower it's a lot easier in uh, a lot of ways to put together uh in a little more bit of a steady way and so yeah it's 10 rolls or you know like i'm not going to shoot through 10 rolls in the next two years probably uh because it's you know sort of a novelty thing for me to shoot now, but uh, it's cool. I got that uh, film roll finished. I think it, it, yeah, like I was saying, it was probably from January till near the end of August now. So it's really not like a fast pace. It's probably like two or three frames a month that I've been shooting. But it's at a number of the different um, camps and stuff that I've gone to over the last year, or different like trips and stuff that I've gone to, different uh, little spots that I was at. So I hope that there's some cool stuff on there. It's kind of fun when you go back and check, uh, and you see like what you got. And if, if you haven't like um, duplicated over. Or at least if I noticed, I haven't really duplicated over the uh, the this photo sets with you know a bunch of digital images of the same location and then a bunch of film photos of that same location. If I haven't really like crossed over too much, it's really almost a surprise to me when I when I develop the role and I see some of the frames over there. And I think, oh man, I've never you know I've never seen this photo before. I never got to look at the back of the screen or something to see how this photo would come out, or I didn't uh, I didn't get to pull it up on my computer yet. So you kind of look back to this thing that happened you know, six or seven months ago, and you go, oh, man, I remember taking a picture of it, but I had never seen it. And So it's kind of fun getting to capture some of that stuff and uh, getting to go through it and check it out. And, yeah, sometimes there's a, there's a cool quality to the film photos that come out. But uh, this is the first roll that I put through this camera, so we'll see if it, uh, if it comes out at all. Uh, I don't really know how to develop it now that we're in uh, sort of the, the, the COVID stuff that we've been going through during 2020 i know like a lot of businesses are now open up again or you know like back into operations but there's also sort of some strange protocols of how different things work so i was trying to kind of figure that out or see if there was delays or something to it but i think that uh, that i'm able to take it down to a spot and uh, and they can probably develop it in house over a couple of days um but well no i think it's still send out yeah so i think it kind of depends on like what what the you know what the location in Portland is doing or something, right? I'm not really sure. It's kind of interesting. I think they can do a lot of C41 processing in house, so maybe it's easier for them than what I'm thinking. But I was looking at a couple different services. So there's always kind of the the idea where, like, if if you're in a bigger market, you probably got a couple more options than I do. But out here in a more rural, uh, smaller market, um, getting film developed has become quite a bit more difficult. I probably talked about this before. How uh, well you know like we've everybody's seen the film departments and the 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 photo departments of a lot of stores 
just kind of go out of business or flip to being just a few digital kiosks that you get prints made of. And that's definitely going to serve 99% of the business. But um, and department store negatives were never the best things by any means. But uh, but a lot of a lot of the access that you would have had to to send your photos somewhere uh, that you would see at least you know like through your commercial markets that you go to uh, have kind of disappeared. And so uh, so now like yeah, you really just have to to send an envelope out yourself to some developing house to have them process the photos, send you back your negatives, and send you back like a digital. CD or thumb drive with your photos on. I think now you can select for thumb drives for most everything, but it's kind of a, I don't know, it's sort of a little strange. It's uh, it's weird. So I was looking at this one service called I think the Dark Room. I think they're out of, uh, like an area in Northern California, like Santa Cruz or Monterey or something like that. And it's I think probably south of the, probably, the Bay Area. Maybe I could say that more. Like the South Bay is sort of what it seemed like they were uh, they were saying from some of their information, but um, with them I had con- like filled out a contact form on their website and then I had uh, sent off that information and they had mailed me back like a prepaid mailer that I can put my my film roll in and then they'll take it, put it through a scanning process, give me my negatives back, and then give me the uh, scans through some digital means. And their prices were pretty reasonable, but it seemed like it was somewhere around 20 bucks a roll to get the sort of good stuff. You can go up from there and spend more, or you can go down a little bit and spend a little less. Uh, but I wouldn't really recommend that. That would be that'd be like a a, a lower quality um, scan of, of the material and stuff. And really, that's sort of what I'm facing with the local stuff, too. Like I was saying, I can go to this local camera shop that's still a town away, uh, and I could drop my film off there. Then there's sort of the old-timey, they haven't really renovated anything since the late 90s sort of camera store model that you would have seen before. Uh, but you go in there, you can drop your film off. They'll have it ready in a day, which is great. Otherwise, with this mail-in service, I'll probably have to wait a week or two weeks to get my film back. Um, but you can wait like a day, two days, three days or something, go down and pick up the film. But the problem is the CD that they provide you uh, is bad. Or it's just got like... I haven't done that in years, too. I used to have, like, a CD reader. I haven't had, like, a CD drive in a, a long time, like, a couple of years now, at least, that I've, like, done the CD stuff. Shoot. Um, but, the C- yeah, the CD quality or, like, whatever whatever system they're using to scan those images is pretty bad. So you get, like, a – it's, like, a 2-megapixel scan. It's really hardly usable for anything but, you know, like, uh, something fun to see on a computer screen. But it's not really good enough to print anything more than, like, a, a – four by five or so inch photo and even still that's kind of uh, it's it's not as rich as it could be if it was scanned uh, properly so that's one of the benefits that you get with doing a send out is that you get to kind of work with whatever whatever scan shop is actually looking at and dealing with and caring for your photos and a lot of these local shops they probably do a good job also and if you're in again like a larger market or a more developed market there's going to be well, I don't know. Probably like I don't know. There's probably going to be one or two places in most of the West Coast market cities. Like so, you know, like Seattle, another car coming by. But uh like Seattle, Vancouver, San Francisco. I mean, Portland's got two or one maybe. They've got like a little art house style one, but um I think a lot a lot of these also, I think they they kind of uh, cheat a little bit and send their stuff out to a bigger print house when it gets a little bit more complicated. Um, 
So I'm not really sure how that that goes. You kind of have to look at it and like sort of read what that little spot is up to and how they kind of work with those those filled up photos and stuff. But uh, but yeah, I think getting the scans is a pretty good way of going about getting your film stuff created. And it's not too bad sending your scan in, getting it developed, put on CD, getting it sent back to you. That's all pretty easy. The C41 processing for a lot of the color film stuff that you can just get is uh, pretty easy to use. Like for any other more complicated stuff like medium format or large format if you get to shoot it um or what's the other one 240 even like some black and white stuff uh it's like it's it's just not standard enough it's not the c41 processing system they've got so it has to be sent out to like a different place and it has to be i guess uh more dutifully processed to get uh handled but i think that's because kind of like what what we recognize is that the those uh those formats have uh, pretty much all but disappeared now. So you just really can't get a hold of a lot of medium format film to shoot through. I mean, you can, of course, but it's just not going to be something that's done enough. So just about all that stuff is sent out to a few hubs that are large enough so they can get enough of that so that it's profitable enough for them to to keep developing it. So it's kind of cool. I don't know. It's interesting. But uh, but yeah, I'm going to try and shoot that film off, get my uh, my film sent back to me. Hopefully that'll work out pretty good. The other thing I've been trying to do, I've been going through uh, like a an old box that I have and it's got uh, these mini DV tapes in it from probably starting in, I don't know, 2005, 2006, 2007. And then probably no more by around 2008 or 2009. It's interesting how fast those things kind of come and go when you look back at them. But, uh, but yeah, I think when I was getting into video editing and video processing stuff back in like high school and into college when I was starting, uh, a lot of the the video footage that I'd record would be put onto these mini DV tapes that were they look kind of like small palm sized VHS tapes that were kind of a, a split between a few different uh, video mediums that were out there like Hi8 or VHSC I think was like the other camera types that they had out there for a couple of years that sort of uh, were sort of floating around there in the market at the same time. I have these mini DV tapes and it's got footage on them still. And I think I have clips of the footage that is that have been um, captured off of it. Like way back in 2005, whenever I used a capture card to capture that mini DV footage over from the camcorder that took it and then bring it into Final Cut Studio 3 or whatever it was that might have been around back then or probably Studio 2, Adobe version 1, uh, Premiere 1, you know, way back. Um, but when I was, yeah, you'd capture the, this AVI file that was huge as a humongous file. It was like two gigabytes every minute or something. It was terrible. Um, it, kind of a weird uncompressed. And this was just like a standard definition grainy video. It sucked to deal with. Um, but it, you could just barely kind of process it with the computers of the day, running it firewire over from the computer, uh, or over like across the, the camcorder through like a little capture card firewire mechanism that it had in it. I think it was, I got to use like a a Canon XL1 back in the day. And that was pretty cool. That was like a pretty fancy camera for the 2004, 2005, 2006 range. And uh, so, yeah, it was fun to to get to shoot on. Nice big lens on it. Got to do a bunch of sports stuff and a bunch of normal video stuff. But, uh, But yeah, shooting with that, captured onto a mini DV tape. Sent over FireWire to like a Mac G5 computer, I think is what it was for a long time. And then I got one of those later myself to use to do some editing stuff. And I had that until, I don't know, 2012 or so, 2013 when I finally sold it. Um, 
But yeah, using those computers and stuff to capture these mini DV tapes. So way back, I'd captured the footage, done some edits to it, or worked on whatever project it was associated with it. And then I'd rendered that out. And I probably still have some of those captured files that are edited, rendered out, that are somewhere on my computer video archive that I've got around. I've seen a few of them floating around, but it's not really like the raw footage. So it's cool. I've got these mini DV tapes still to whatever's still on them. I think they've been recorded over a few times. So I didn't do the the archivist job of putting everything together as I probably should have project by project, mini DV tape by mini DV tape to, to pull out all the raw stuff now and then be able to have it in full. Um, I think I've re recorded over a few of those like uh, short class project files that I would have recorded for a bunch of the stuff that I would have worked on through late high school and college. So for whatever, I, I got a box of tapes. So whatever I do have, I have, but I definitely think that I've lost some stuff in there too. So I've taken these sets of tapes uh, and I'm trying to take them in and send them to uh, like a conversion shop, sort of like I was saying, you know, with the film stuff, trying to get my film developed. I'm trying to send these, these mini DV tapes out to a spot where they'll take it, put it in the scanning system and then capture that video off of it again and give me a digital file with that captured video. And uh, it's kind of cool getting to see some of the stuff again. I've done it with two tapes already as like a test. And then I need to drop in probably another eight or 10 tapes to see if I can get some video off of them. But it's kind of cool. Yeah, some stuff that goes back to, I think, like 2006. And then another thing from probably summer of 2007, maybe somewhere in there. Yeah, probably like the yeah 2007 era. I think it's like this wedding that I recorded. And so, yeah, I just... <laughs> Yeah, I just got this got this tape back. It was blank. It didn't have a label on it. And it, it's just, yeah, somebody's wedding from 2007 that I recorded. Um, so it's like, oh, there you go. Yeah, another uh, event that I recorded, recorded some, um, some stage event that I recorded. And got, got tape of it. There you go. Camera set up on a tripod, looking at video from, I think that one's uh, 2000, early 2007 as well, you know. So it's kind of uh, kind of interesting to see that stuff. But yeah, I just uh, dropped off another two tapes. I'm going to, I think, drop off maybe another four or so. And I think they process it. They put it on a thumb drive for you. And then they uh, send you the tape back and they give you a thumb drive. And it has this little process mark on it. But yeah, you throw the, throw the thumb drive into your computer, transfer those, uh, those files over. And they're uh, you know, like a more reasonably compressed MP4 or something, I think, this time. Or QuickTime file, something like that. And yeah, drag it over to your computer. You got a, an hour of videotape. Now convert it over to a digital file. So I'm going to try and go through uh, that box that I have and see if I can pull out some cool videos from some stuff from 2005 to 2008, whatever range of stuff I was recording during that time. That'll be kind of fun to see. Really what I'm noticing, though, is that it's just a lot of junk. I really am frustrated now you know you kind of think like early on you're like recording some stuff you're recording something cool and then it, it kind of turns out later to be not not super useful or it's just not like a really like a full contained thing and you think man there's a lot of waste in here if i could have eight hours of the good stuff that would have been great you know or if you really think about life and like oh what eight hours would i want to still see now or you know like what kind of stuff what do i wish i had uh, recorded a little bit more of moment to moment and i'm looking at that a little bit through the videos that I recorded that are like, ugh, what is this project? And also into the uh, photos that I record too. I'm like, ah, you know, like it, the, the, there's some, there's some, 
the process of photo stuff is cool, but there's some nostalgic stuff about photography that uh, that really is what grows over the years. You know, like uh, if you're just taking personal photos, it's like the moments and the things and the uh, the way that you sort of interacted with the thing that ends up being a lot more fun to see and look back on than uh, just sort of the the most plain uh, sort of flatly composed vista that you can uh, kind of put together on a on a viewpoint. Uh, which is sort of what I end up having a lot of. I'm just like, oh yeah, it's like a it's like a horizon and then a sky, and I don't really know where it is, and it's sort of flat and okay. But uh, you know, but then there's a lot of stuff that's uh, that's pretty cool and uh, sort of personal to get to see, and that's what the I think the fun stuff is year over year over year as so you get uh, kind of further down the road. But I uh, wanted to talk a little bit about the Perseid meteor shower that had come up a while back now in early August. And it was cool getting to see that. Hopefully you guys got to get out and make some observations of some meteors that were going by. I got to do a couple of camping trips during that time. I think uh, like at the end of July when Comet Neowise was cruising over. Some of you guys probably got to see that. That was cool. Uh, but during like the end of July is when the Perseids start kind of ramping up. And then uh, it's pretty light. It's like it's a chance that you'll see a, a meteorite or, you know, a meteor streak across the sky during the evening sky uh, during those weeks. But it really starts to kick up and peak. I think it's uh, August 10th, 11th and 12th, sort of in that range, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th. But really, I think like the 10th, 11th is when it, it it's um, it's the nights to see it. And it's cool on nights or on years that the that the meteor shower is really peaking i think it can be like up to 50 or almost 60 an hour that you'd be projected to see but i've seen a lot of really cool ones before that uh, it's been uh pretty fun or you just go like whoa man i'm just seeing like a lot of shooting stars like uh, throughout the sky so it was cool this year i went out for a couple different sightings of it i think uh like that during that last podcast that i was talking about was probably one of uh, the better observation nights that I had when I was up on top of that mountain peak out in eastern Oregon. It was really uh, beautiful. It was a really dark night. You could uh, you could see really uh, crisply into the Milky Way and into kind of the, the little filament light structures that sort of make up the edges and boundaries of the Milky Way. And then how dark it gets as it kind of falls off that into the the deep space part of the night sky. It's really cool to to kind of check out and look at that. And, uh, and that was a lot of fun getting to uh, go out there look at the sky, look at the Milky Way, watch the Perseids as it kind of started to kick in a little bit more after midnight. So I stayed up till about, about 2 a.m. that night, and I probably saw, uh, it was probably 15 or, or nearly 20 pretty good ones. There's a, there a bunch of spitters that were kind of coming through there, but there was really like a lot of good ones that I was able to see um, kind of later or over that night and the night before. And uh, it's cool when you get to, uh, see a few of them that they, they really kind of stretch off across like a lot of different parts of the sky. I think they're the idea of the Perseids is that they're sort of originating out of the constellation of Perseus up in the, the Northeast part of the sky, but really you can see them uh, shooting out down into like Sagittarius and Scorpio in the South or way out past like Arcturus um, as you get like a little bit further over into the, the Western sky. But yeah, it was cool getting to check out the meteor shower, getting to see some of those uh, bright tubes that are left behind. These like plasma tubes that are left behind. It's uh, one of the bigger uh, meteorites kind of cruises through, burns up, and leaves this kind of tube of, I guess, hot air, hot ionized air. 
and it kind of glows for about a second or so in the sky. You can kind of see it as it then sort of zips and wisps away as it sort of evaporates and cools back down. But it was fun, yeah, being out there, watching a few uh, meteor or meteors shoot by. That was fun. Um, and then, yeah, really a great part of uh, August and some of the observations that you get to do is get to check out the meteor shower. I guess there's meteor showers through other parts of the year, too, like, I think there's supposed to be, well, it's probably a couple more weeks. I think there's like another really good one that comes up in October that we normally miss. There's another good one. I think it's like the Leonid. Maybe it's a Leonid shower that's in November. Um, but for a lot of us in the Northern Hemisphere, by that time, it's just like clouded over enough. Or the the way that the weather's working just makes it so that you're not really able to make the kind of observations of uh, of the meteor showers you'd like to, I suppose. Even when, uh, like, I was in Hawaii a while back, and um, I was trying to make observations of some of those things that I hadn't been able to do during the winter months here in Oregon. And a lot of that stuff I really wasn't able to see uh, in the way that I would have hoped to. Um, or, yeah, just, like, the observations of it, like, were, were just, I don't know, kind of kind of difficult to make so really like yeah the perseid meteor shower was always one of the coolest ones because it's uh it's kind of it's it's right there kind of right in a good season where you get to check it out and in a good location for a lot of us here in the the northern hemisphere and stuff so it was cool had a good time uh getting to do some of that earlier this year it's weird too i'm out here uh in like this section of the of this wildlife refuge i was noticing the leaves and stuff like i was talking about the the acres of the of the grass fields have been tilled now and now it's uh, dirt and rocks that are sort of uh, turned up all over these uh, multi-acre fields and stuff but out here past that there's groves of of oak trees that kind of stretch out along the creeks as they grown and then up onto the hillsides as it, it kind of extends up into the forest over here more um, but i'm noticing in the oak trees now that it's september 1st uh, there's like this browning that's starting to occur. And so it's just sort of the, the last two weeks of August is when you really start to first see it. But it's the, the first twinge that the, the leaves are starting to change their color and that the seasons are starting to flip. And it's starting to move into uh, into more of the fall uh, autumn season, which is kind of cool. It's uh, interesting to see like how it, it sort of takes place. When I was driving on the freeway last week and I was sort of moving around a little bit more, I could see uh, a few rows of trees that had been put in. I think they were ash or maybe they were poplar trees um, that had already started to turn really quite yellow in, uh, on some of the branches. And it's interesting to see how they sort of uh, start to pop and turn at different times. But it'll be interesting to see how this year sort of plays out. I'm not sure if we're going to get the, the Indian summer, the extended summer into uh, like late September, October, like we've maybe gotten uh, a few of the last uh last few years but uh it'll be kind of neat to check out i'm excited for it to be september start to be maybe a little bit of change of uh the the vibe of what's been going on for the last few months i'm kind of tired of the pandemic and the lockdown stuff and um some of the changes that have sort of come with that so i'm hopeful to kind of uh maybe see the fall be a shift in some of the way that uh some of that's working or kind of see like how it's going to evolve we're going to maybe see now if uh, like colleges are going back into place or if schools are going back into place. or uh, I think that'll be kind of maybe a, it'll set the temperature, the vibe of the type of change we're going to see through the rest of the year and how it's going to go. I'm already seeing you know news articles saying, you know, expect a, 
expect a, a distanced Thanksgiving over Zoom. Um, so it doesn't look like uh, they're putting it on the agenda to be back out of it or celebrating anything soon, which I understand and I guess makes some sense. And it sounds like a lot of states aren't going to be bringing their schools back into place, which I think is really going to affect a lot of uh, parents and their ability to have a work schedule as they're managing their kid in a home environment and stuff. So that's all going to be kind of strange. And now that kind of cascades a problem. But uh, yeah, it looks like it's going to take a little longer to pull out of all the consequences from the pandemic. Uh, and it's too bad I wasn't a little faster. I was hoping that it would be kind of in July or August that we'd be able to kick most of it and get back to uh, pretty regular business. But yeah, with a lot of states just not selecting to have their, their K through 12 classrooms reopen, uh, but for reopening through a distance learning mechanism where you're, you're, you're required to be occupied at home, I think that's going to put a lot of parents in positions uh, that... It's just going to make it. Uh, it's going to make it an additioning, uh, or it's well. It's just going to be a weird couple months, and uh, I think everybody's got a pretty good handle on that. Shoot, I wanted to talk about uh, this trip I did out to the the Lake Billy Chinook area. That's a cool area. I like that. Uh, I think Lake Billy Chinook is well. Maybe it's the lake. I've seen a couple different names for that lake. It's sort of on the border. One edge of it toward the north is the Warm Springs Indian Reservation. To the south, I think it's, what is that area? Nah, I don't know what it is. I was trying to think of the, the national forest system it's part of. But uh, now I can't remember. Um, but there's some national forest out there. And I think it's where like the Crooked River and maybe the White River, Salmon River. No, it's not the Salmon River. I can't remember. It's where like a couple rivers uh, sort of have their convergence point before they think they enter up and, and head down toward the Deschutes River. Uh, and they put a dam in there and then backed it up. And it's it's a, an amazing location. It's really wild to think of what the landscape must have been like there way, way back. But uh, they put a dam in. But these canyon walls, these like really, really steep walls um, go down, you know, like hundreds of feet or something more than like where it's even dammed up to today. So... Uh, it's it's a really kind of strange spot, but uh, but yeah, I was camping out over there. Uh, really interesting area. It was cool. I, I I didn't camp down by the lake. That was really actually very full, kind of like I talked about a few times in this podcast. Uh, the the outdoor kind of camping area is sort of the more developed. Pull your pull your truck and trailer in and set up a campsite 15 feet from another camper next to a lake, so you can fish kind of spots. Those are all really full this summer. Um, I think you know maybe like. Tuesday, Wednesday, you can find some more open spots, but there's still campers through the week. But then by Thursday, Friday, Saturday, most of those spots are real full, and the 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 small town junctions to get to those spots are even more full. Like going out to Lapine before you get out toward uh, the Newberry Crater, Paulina Lake area, or out toward like Crescent Lake or some of those Cascade Lakes that you can cut up to. That the Lapine area, some of those little travel center gas stations out there that I've intersected with a couple times on those trips out to Eastern Oregon, are slammed by Friday with out-of-state license plates and with in-state license plates from people from Portland or Bend or from wherever going out to do their uh, summer recreation stuff. And it's been way more busy this year than I've seen it for a number of the past years. But um, but yeah, when I was out toward the Lake Billy Chinook area, the, the state park area where there was uh, like tent camping and RV camping, 
that was sold out, it said, no vacancy. And it was loaded, like no no distancing, it seemed really, you know, but it's just uh, tent on tent on tent on tent on truck camper and so on. And it's a cool spot, though. It's a, it's great if you got a, a boat or if you're renting like a houseboat or family boat or something like that to go out on. It's cool. You can uh, yeah drive your trailer down, drop it in the lake uh, and take off for, you know, a whole day and, and just kind of cruise around acres and acres of uh of lake out there so really beautiful spot really cool seems like it'd be a good spot to go fishing or i think people do some kind of light water sports sort of uh not jet ski but uh or, you know like wakeboard inner tube ski sort of stuff i think it's part like some parts of it and then i think some other parts are still set up to be uh, a little more slow for the fishing stuff another car driving by what's up cars um, but it was cool out there. It was a nice spot to go camping. I, uh, what I ended up doing though, is I, uh, was looking on that map, that, uh, that off road on X map that I've talked about a few times shows a lot of the, the roads, the forest service roads that kind of stretch out and the forest service roads that are open too. So a lot of them have like gates on them. So if you're going down a road and you, you see it on the map, but you're not really sure if it's open or open to the public or if it, if it drives through or, or not, it's cool. Cause you can look on this map and see what is there and where you can go and, you can see what roads are open. But I was able to take this uh, forest service road that cuts on the south side of the lake area and then uh, I think goes up into the mountains. And then it would, if you took it all the way, you would you'd go over the mountain and then head down to Sisters, Oregon, which is a ways south of there. But you could take that uh, just with, with back roads, the, you know, forest service back roads. Uh, but it was cool. I put, uh, as you kind of climb the ridge out of the lake area or out of the draw that was created by the river and the creek that flow into the bigger lake um you you climb away it's like 500 feet or something it seems and you get up kind of toward the the top of it and it's interesting how the landscape is out there it's really it seems like a flat landscape and then the elevation change is created by the erosion from the water that uh, that kind of creates these big canyon draws that then drop down into the lake and so you can drop in elevation a lot, but really as you climb an elevation and get to the top of that, it really looks like a plateau that flattens out and goes flat across the high desert area out up into uh, like Mount Hood or Mount Jefferson that you can kind of see from that area as you kind of climb up out of the, um, I guess, out of that canyon grassland area. So it was cool. Yeah, the, the camping spot I, I got to was a, uh, a dispersed campsite. That was up on top of that ridge outside of all the commotion at the state park area by uh, Billy Chinook. And it was cool. Yeah. Pulled up out of there. Uh, found, I think, like these four campsites that had uh, like fire rings set up. And they were all about uh, probably like spread out by like a quarter mile or so. It wasn't too long of a space. But yeah, it was this old rocky road that uh, kind of curled out onto the precipice of this uh, this little point. And then the main road sort of stretched up the spine of the ridge and went up uh, a little further as, until it crested over and then came back down the other side. But went out toward this point and you had a, a cool view of Mount Jefferson that wasn't really too far away. Mount Jefferson looked pretty prominent in the view. And then as you looked up kind of toward the north uh, northwest, you could see uh, the point of Mount Hood kind of sticking up over the flat plateau of the land that I had talked about. So you couldn't see all of Mount Hood, but you could see kind of the top third of it or so just kind of sticking up over this flat plateau of landscape and then below that below mount hood it dropped into this big canyon and then 
dropped into the lake, Billy Chinook, that you could kind of see uh, down to the north and northwest or north and northeast uh, below me. And so it was cool. It was uh, nice uh, getting up to that spot. I tried to take some pictures up there, tried to uh, get some sunset photos of Mount Jefferson and uh, try to do a couple sunrise photos too. That was cool. It was better light in the uh, sunrise sort of given the uh, the side of the mountain that I was on. But uh, but yeah, it was nice getting out there and checking out Mount Jefferson. At night, it was cool. Uh, it was pretty, well, like I'm kind of uh, against like um, starting fires and stuff right now. So I've been using, I think like I talked about a couple of times, that propane heater that saved me a lot through the uh, through the season. But this is a good spot to use it. It says everywhere up there. I think after a couple a couple fires that had uh, gotten out into the grassland and then gotten out of control uh, early this decade, I think it was about 10 years ago or so, they had that Warm Springs fire that burned a lot of it. If you pull up a satellite image of the area, you'll see acres and acres and acres, just this whole big region that's been blackened by uh, by this fire that had gone through the, a big section of the Warm Springs uh, Reservation and uh, some of the land that kind of stretches out from there. Real shame as that goes, but there's a lot of stuff that says, you know, hey, like we are locking down a lot of the fire use stuff that you have. So any any kind of just anything that seems hot, you just you don't get to use it is, is pretty much what it seems to say. I think you can use gas stoves and I think you can use some propane systems, but really it's like it's it's pretty against it in most ways. So uh, like I think you can't use charcoal. You can't use a fire pan, which is, you know, sort of how you get around these restrictions a lot of the time. Um, you just, yeah, you can't use any of that stuff. And I think it really kind of noticing what I, what I saw out there is that the wind is just really kicking up fast. And if anything leaves the fire and as a hot ember, it'll just blow across and catch into a bunch of grass really way faster than you can get to it and way faster than you can deal with it. So I understand like a lot of that. And I'm pretty happy to, to not have to deal with uh, making a big fire or anything out there right now, especially through the summertime. So not a, not now that it is dropping into September and the fall and uh, moving into like some of the like hunting camp stuff that people are going to be doing, fire is going to be great. That's always uh, a fun part of the October camping stuff when you, you get to light up a, a big fire, burn through some wood, stay up late. Still stay warm. That stuff's really fun. But uh, but man, for like midsummer, really dry grassland camping, I'm happy to skip the fire this time. It was cool though that night when I was out there. Uh, I was camping out uh, at the truck, and as you looked uh, north, uh, you could see up in Washington somewhere. You know, it must have been way north of the Columbia River. You can see this uh, thunderhead system that had moved over, and you can see these these really bright and very distant strikes of lightning that would shoot down uh somewhere east of mount adams that you kind of make out up there you can so i could see mount hood from where i was and then a little over from that really more of like a due north location you could see the hump of mount adams out there and then so somewhere out east of mount adams from that landmark you could see these big purple bolts of uh, lightning that would strike down somewhere up in washington but that was really cool to see glad i got to be up there and uh you couldn't hear it though no thunder or anything you just see these distant flashes and stuff every 10 15 minutes you'd see these strikes from the storm and uh nowhere near me but yeah it's it a trip how you can still see it from those mountaintops up there so it was cool got a good time uh hanging out there out by mount jefferson seeing some stuff checking out lake billy chinook that was really fun got to drop down to a couple fishing spots that are in that area 
That was cool. Nice spot. Good summer spot, spot to go. Really nice to uh, get away from the state park campsite area that they had that was super packed out and go to some areas that were a little bit more dispersed on the sides. Had a good time doing that. So, I don't know. It was cool. But I'll probably wrap up the podcast here for this episode of uh, the Billy Newman Photo Podcast for the first week of September 2020. You guys should check out my website, billynewmanphoto.com. I'm going to try and put up some more uh, written and photo content up there on the blog posts section of the site uh, through September and October. So that'll be kind of cool. I have some new photos and stuff that I haven't put up before that I'm going to try and uh, try and put out. And uh, I got a few other things kind of planned for the fall that I'm excited to get into. But yeah, so a few, a few more podcasts through September. Couple more things like this, talking about some camping. I have a few plans to uh, to go out and do some traveling and stuff. So I hope I get to uh, do some posts and make some new photos about that. It's pretty excited about what I got coming up for at least the next thirty days. Then it probably slows down a lot into late October, November. Oh man, the winter time! How fun! It's gonna be exciting. But yeah, go to billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. Uh, you can check out some more stuff about this podcast or uh, help me out on there. It's always appreciated. But yeah, until next time, thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Bye.